Okay, this is chapter 13 of the Pious and Elaborate Treatise Concerning Prayer and the Answer of Prayer by John Brown of Lamfrey. We're going to be, this chapter is in the right manner of praying to God. We're going to break it into two weeks because it is a somewhat lengthy treatment. And um, don't want to rush through everything that he has to say here. Remember the verse that uh, is the basis for this entire book, John 14, 13 and 14. Whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. So, in the previous chapter, uh, actually back in chapter 11, uh, there was a discussion uh, and instruction with regard to the object of worship and prayer, and then we talked about uh, some of the things, some of the mistakes that we should guard against. And now we're moving into what he joins with, I think, with chapter 11. Um, that is a second instruction or inference to avoid mistakes in prayer. So, uh, with question 267. The second inference is, uh, or instruction is this. It says, because prayer is to be performed to God alone, <clears throat> we need to be very careful that praying to or invocating God <clears throat> is done in such a manner that it is some way answerable to the object. <clears throat> right, so, what that means is really, uh, at least in part, uh, what this chapter is going to be about. Right, so the right manner of praying to God, <clears throat> we, what we're really saying here is uh, something to this effect. You know, if God is the object of our prayer, the the um, the performance of prayer, the endeavor of prayer, should be conformable to that object. And this is why. Um, in Reformed circles, there has been, uh, historically, there's been concern for things like uh, decency and order, for there to be a certain amount of reverence, <coughs> right? We shouldn't go to prayer um, without, in, in a sense, preparing ourselves. Right? We, we have to do with the true and living God. <clears throat> and because we have to do with this God in prayer, 
the manner of our prayer should be answerable to that. That's his point. You know, we shouldn't. Uh, praying is is another one of these things that should be undertaken with a certain amount of seriousness and reverence and. Um, so we're going to talk about some of these things in this chapter. All right, so 268, then what is the first thing to be studied? The manner of right prayer and why? This is the first thing, 268a, first thing is because it is God, the true God, that we are invocating. We ought to be very careful in our approach. And so all of our praying should be gone about in a humble manner. And the reason is, we need to remember that He is the great and holy God. This is the second point here in 268. He's the great and holy God, and we are but sinful dust and ashes. So we, we need in all prayer to keep in mind at the same time the supreme majesty of the true God and in a sense um, the worthless insignificance that is uh, each one of us, right? The human condition and each individual human. Right? And in this, <clears throat> I've talked about this before, but this is uh, this is actually traceable to, to two things, uh, two major teachings in the Bible. One is the teaching that there is. Uh, between the creator and the creature, there is an insurmountable or infinite gulf. Right? The cre- cre- uh, creature is, is um, less than a drop in the bucket when compared to the creator. Right? When the Bible describes a creation with respect to the creator, it struggles to um, to declare the insignificance of the creation. The second point is there is this additional infinite gulf which has developed because of sin. God is holy and and fallen men are altogether uh, sinful, abject uh, base creatures. So we're not just we're not just creatures. That's not low enough, but we are sinful creatures. <clears throat> and, you know, when, when we keep that in mind in our approach to God, <clears throat> uh, this, I think, maintaining this thinking is helpful not only in prayer, but in uh, instilling in people a sense of thanksgiving with regard to the matter of redemption. If God would have condescended 
as he did with Adam, <clears throat> that he would condescend to take notice of such a an insignificant creation. Well, that that's surprising and amazing enough. But when you add to that uh, the, the the depth of our depravity, and that God would reach into the creation to drag us out of that. That's even more remarkable. To put it in a little bit of perspective, you know, when was the last time you stopped <clears throat> to take note and, and show concern, let's say, for an ant that was walking in your way? And, and the, the difference between you and the ant is a finite gulf. The difference between you and the Creator is infinite. <coughs> so, we should approach God in prayer humbly. And we want to look at a couple of verses here. Uh, if we can, look at Psalm 10, verse 7. Luke... Um, Luke 18, verse 13. Psalm 10, verse 7. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and fraud. Under his tongue is mischief and vanity. Luke 18, verse 13. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes into heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Yeah, and, and he also points out how the prodigal spoke to his father in Luke 15. Uh, you have the modern reprint of the book, and they have Luke 1, 5, but it's Luke 15 is where we find the story of the prodigal. And in, in Luke 15, you know, when the prodigal returns, <clears throat> he, um, he's deeply humbled says he's not even worthy to be his son and, and so on. That, those are all pictures <coughs> of the kind of humility which God finds acceptable in approach. So we, we need to be careful that we balance um, our boldness in prayer that you know we, we we have um, a certain measure of boldness that that um, is permitted to us because we are joint heirs with Christ, and and yet what Brown is pointing out is even in that boldness, that confidence with which we can speak to God, you know, so that like Abraham arguing with God. Um, over the 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 fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, Abraham keeps going back and and arguing the point with God. There's a certain confidence there. But that confidence, we we should always understand that confidence is not something that should be founded upon who or what we are. Our confidence in approaching God 
is always grounded in what Christ has done and not who or what we are. <clears throat> in fact, it's, it's, always, um, it's always amazing to me to hear uh, a, lot of the, a lot of people today who, who speak of themselves and what they think they deserve. Uh, you, you can tell we live in a very irreligious age, particularly an age where uh, all fear of God has been cast off because people uh, will stand there and tell you uh, that they just, by reason of being, they deserve to be respected and they deserve this and they deserve to have that and you know all these social justice movements that are founded in this uh, are in, in many respects um, even, even when the object itself is not um, objectionable uh, the fact is it's undertaken from a motive and a ground which is entirely objectionable Right? It's not a matter of, of um, something being undertaken because God has said uh, this is what is just and right among men. Rather, it's undertaken from this principle that I have an inherent worth and value um, when in fact your worth and value is found in God and not in you. Right? If God didn't value the creature, and, and particularly the sinful creature, so as to redeem it, uh, there would be no value. Because there is, when you hear the people in the Bible talking, they don't understand there to be some inherent value in themselves. Right? They're, they're continually amazed that God would value them. So they understand that you know God is, in a sense, um, loving what He has put into man. Right? He has He's created man in the image of Himself. So what He loves about mankind is His own image. You know, and and when we deny that, <clears throat> we really lose all of the basis for understanding what's just and right. So keeping keeping all of this in proper uh, in a proper frame would help us maintain a certain amount of humility. Now, Brown, and we're going to look at this in question uh, two sixty nine. There are twelve things Brown lists in which he says humility consists, and so we want to look at these uh, these twelve things. And um, each one of these. Uh, he has given either uh, a scripture reference or he uh, is giving sort of a summation of what the Bible is indicating. Uh, so these, there are 12 things. So let's look at the first, or A, 269A. First is... Uh, we should count ourselves 
really and and, and unworthy uh, to get permission to stand before God and speak to Him. Uh, we we should look at ourselves as being dust and ashes, worms, and no no men at all. And he refers to Psalm. Somebody has a Bible. We can look at Psalm twenty-two six and uh, Ezra nine six. Psalm twenty-two six and Ezra nine six. Psalm twenty-two verse six. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. And Ezra nine six. Ezra 9 verse 6 and said oh my God I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee my God for our our iniquities are increased over our head and our trespass is grown up unto the heavens (coughs) you know it's amazing um, how low uh, an estimate men in the Bible put upon themselves. Uh, We live in an age now where not only society at large, but a lot of these mega churches are going to tell you your problem is self-esteem. You need to have higher self-esteem. right? You you need to work on your self-esteem. You should view yourself as being better. And the Bible is everywhere actually encouraging you not to do that. Because your real problem is not self-esteem. Right? People naturally are proud. Uh, that is, by because we're sinners. Right? We're proud. We think too highly of ourselves. It's what we do all the time. You know, we look in the mirror and we think, how pretty that face staring back at me. You know, we, we do this or that and we think, wow, I did a great job. You know, we're, we're constantly patting ourselves on the back, reassuring ourselves that we are wonderful, uh, pleasant, uh, profitable creatures. We create, and and this is, again, the sinful nature, we're continually weaving this web wherein um, we're perceiving ourselves and we're presenting ourselves as is something far beyond what the Bible says is a proper estimate. And so, you know, one of the things about praying, I think, you should take away as we go through these 12 points about humility. When you pray, if you pray right, one of the first things that prayer does is it's putting a divine foot on you and kind of stomping you down into the dust and reminding you of whence you came and the fact that you exist solely at the mercy of God. Which is not a bad place to be, by the way. You know, it's, it, 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 it beats the alternative, which is not to exist by the mercy of God. That's the condition of unbelievers. They exist outside of the mercy of God. 
All right, the second thing, B. Uh, he says, um, humility consists in counting ourselves unworthy of the smallest might of mercy uh, that ever a sinful creature got because we know that we deserve hellfire and the curse of God. <clears throat> Again, think about that and you know when you when you hear all these movements for uh, this group of people or that group of people striving to attain to rights, you know, and ask yourself, are they asserting rights under God, or are they asserting rights based upon self-worth? Two very different approaches. And only one of them can expect the blessing of God. The other is, you know, to to get what you want apart from the blessing of God is to gain a curse. And so it's not going to be a good thing. <clears throat> All right, the third thing, uh, the third thing in which humility consists, uh, C, 69C, it consists in a willing and ready amplifying of our own vileness and unworthiness uh, to the end that we would be more ashamed before the Lord. And, and he points here to the example of penitent Ephraim in Jeremiah 31, verses 18 and 19. So, Jeremiah 31, 18 and 19. Jeremiah 31, 18 and 19. Jeremiah 31, verses 18 and 19. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself thus, Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised, as a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke. Turn thou me, and I shall be turned, for thou art the Lord my God. Surely after that I was turned, I repented, and after that I was instructed, I smote upon my thigh. I was ashamed, yea, even confounded, because I did bear the reproach of my youth. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the point here is, you know, Ephraim repents, and he doesn't, and this is an interesting thing, you know, because there are a lot of churches today, I think, evangelical churches, which will tell you, you know, you don't, you don't need to think about your sinfulness, your sinful behavior. Ephraim says, when I repented... I bore the yoke of the sins of my youth. In other words, I, I set my sin before me. When you set your sin before you, God forgets your sin. When you don't meditate upon your sin, you're going to do things, you're going to take attitudes that will continually provoke God to remind you of your sin. And and maybe even abandon you to 
uh, like sin. <clears throat> so this idea of, of being ready to amplify our own vileness and unworthiness um, is, is really, if we understand the human condition, it, it's really what we should understand to be a sober and truthful self-assessment. You know, in, in our heart of hearts, we should understand um, how vile we are. And, and again, that is not to say that God isn't merciful to vile sinners. In fact, He is. Right? He's, that, that's the point. And when He's merciful, um, rather than forgetting how abased we are as people, and you know, sort of move on. Um, you know, there was uh, this idea of, of moving or getting beyond your past uh, is not an idea that is uh, necessarily uh, in the forefront of what the Bible is saying. You should always keep some kind of of. Um, an eye toward your sins because it, number one, uh, will help you maintain a proper self-assessment before God, and number two, uh, it, it has, the, um, has the added benefit of making you more thankful when you contemplate the mercy of God uh, toward you. Right. You can't plead any desert on your part. This is really, I think, one of the great um, uh, and egregious uh, teachings in the Roman Church is the idea that you can you can work some sort of meritorious work and, and kind of offset <clears throat> bad things that you've done. Uh, that's encouraging people to look to themselves and to gain a false sense of assurance and to, to um, seek to have a self-esteem independent of Christ. And it's contrary to what the Bible is commanding us to do and to be. Right, fourth, D. Uh, the fourth thing in which humility consists in is in expecting all from God gratis, that is, of His free grace and mercy, uh, pleading nothing before Him but our own worthlessness indigency, necessity, and miserable condition. Right. So, again and again, uh, we see this in the Bible, we see this a lot in the Psalms. Back today, when we look at Psalm 86, we're going to see uh, David does just this thing. Right. He's looking for the grace of God, and rather than pleading his self-worth, 
he pleads his worthlessness. And and he does so with all expectation that God will, in fact, um, take hold of him and answer his prayer in that. And he's right to do so. Because he, what he's doing is he's eschewing any self-confidence, any faith in himself, and he's resting his entire faith upon Christ. But his faith is going out of him to another. That's what it has to do. And so this, when Brown is giving us these various parts of humility... Each of these is encouraging us. Uh, humility in general is encouraging us not only to have a sober self-assessment, but uh, that sober self-assessment should lead you to conclude that I can do nothing to affect my own salvation. But I can't contribute anything. There's nothing I can bring. You know, I'm not. I'm not in any way going to. Uh, to help my situation. Right? This view, by the way, this is a view that is contrary, uh, I, I think, to every other, every other religion, major religion in the world, is, to a greater or lesser extent, based upon a series of rules and regulations and things that you can do to either to merit salvation or to um, merit something congruous to that salvation. Yeah. <clears throat> They're still trying to keep the covenant of works, correct? Yeah, it's all. It all goes back to their the fact that they're still under a sense of a broken covenant of works. And they think that they can do what Adam did not do, even though Adam had every advantage uh, that they don't. Uh, primarily, he had a fullness of knowledge, and he was not saddled with um, original sin like we are. Right, so, all right, fifth or or E two sixty nine E uh, humility consists in Sorrow and brokenness of heart for what we've done and for the wretched condition we brought ourselves into through our own folly. If you've ever watched or heard any of these interchanges, uh, talking where, where evangelists are talking to people, and asking them, you know, why do you think God should let you into heaven? The vast majority of people instinctively go to this idea uh, that we're really not bad people at all. But Brown is saying no. Um, as David notes in Psalm 51, we, a humble man is a man of a broken and a contrite spirit. Right? So you, you have to uh, confess your sorrow. You have to be sorrowful. And your heart ought to be broken when you consider your own 
sinful estate. You shouldn't. You, first of all, you're not fooling God. Uh, so, you know, going before God in prayer and and trying to plead uh, that you're something that you're not is is not going to help your case. Your your best. And again, this is the point of the gospel. Uh, your best plea is for mercy. Right? Because every time you try to extenuate or show that, you know, well, yeah, I, I know I, I broke all these commandments, but, you know, I, I, um, I do works of supererogation. I've done good works over here. I've helped this person and that person and so on. It doesn't work that way. So humility is, is uh, among other things, taken up with the sorrow and brokenness of heart and, and tracing it back to our own folly. You know, you, can, you could complain. There are people who do complain, right? Uh, and they, they, or they just say, well, you know, we're all sinners, right? Or they... A lot of times they don't. They won't use the word sin. They'll just say, "Well, you know, we're just human. We make mistakes." But David in Psalm fifty-one, when he's uh, pleading his case, he he says, "Look, um, I've sinned against thee and thee only." And and he says, "You know." What's worse is I was born in sin. I was conceived in sin. You know, so David doesn't look at original sin as an extenuating circumstance in his life, like most people try to do. You know, they try to extenuate their their uh, sinfulness by saying we're just human. But David says that just makes it worse. Right? That just proves God's point. Right, the sixth thing, F, humility consists in being far from limiting the Lord, either as to the time of granting what we would have, or the measure of it. He says, a humble person puts a blank check in God's hand. So when you pray, you're, you're going to say, your timing, uh, your measure, all of that, those determinations are out of my hands. Right? I'm not, if I'm asking for mercy, I really can't, um, I'm not in a position to demand it now, nor am I in a position to demand how much mercy. Right? And that's the point in prayer, when you're praying. Now, again, we're going to balance this with the fact that there are things for which God tells us to pray. There are promises that God makes. And we have reason to pray and believe. All right? But right now we're talking about our attitude in praying. So it's one thing to 
plead with God and, and even make demands of God based upon things that God has promised and, and uh, things that God has revealed about himself to us and so on, it's another thing to try to base our pleading on something in or of ourselves. So humility, it, having humility is about, uh, really is about um, eschewing any confidence in our own flesh. Okay, seventh, or G, seventh uh, thing in which humility consists uh, is bearing with all the discouragements, checks, challenges, rebukes, and upbraidings, whatever else we meet with when we go to God. And um, he brings up uh, that very notable account in the gospel of the woman of Canaan who goes to Christ and she's seeking a miracle and uh, he tells her that healing is a children's bread and rather than being rebuffed by that she says okay well even the dogs get to lick up the crumbs under the table you know, she doesn't. She doesn't say, "Well, you know, fancy that. How how dare you treat me that way?" You know, uh, you don't think Canaanites are as good as Jews? Jewish she, she could. She could plead that, right? She could have. I mean, that would be the kind of pleading you would expect from people today. She doesn't go that route, and it wouldn't. It wouldn't have gotten her anywhere with Jesus. Like she doesn't, she doesn't go like lift herself higher and higher. She's willing to go as low as he demands her to go, in order to get an answer to her petition. And that's what he's saying here. You know, if you're humble, you're going to bear with all those discouragements, all the checks, all the challenges. You know, the the fact is. The gospel, those who are really being called by the gospel are also, to some extent, um, and, and this is, in, you have to understand, this is the nature of, of uh, the, the gospel challenge to our flesh. There are things about it, if you're really hearing the truth, there are things about it that your flesh is going to find repulsive. It's, it's just gonna, it's, it's off-putting, and it's meant to be. God isn't telling you the truth so that He can caress you in your sin, caress you in your pride, caress you in in your haughty condition. Right? Everything is about knocking you down, not just one peg, but down to the bottom of the scum heap, where you're ready to cry out for mercy. That's where God wants you to be. You know, he'll, he'll lift you up. But if you lift yourself up, uh, you're not going to be saved. Right? You, you're putting yourself out, arms reach out of, of, of uh, the possibility of salvation. You have to be willing 
to bear the reproach. So there's going to be, and there, I think there is, uh, to some extent for everyone, there's some reproach. There's some awful reality that God's worldview is going to make you face about yourself, uh, you know, like who and what you are in the world. Right, and just, just I mean, at a, with a broad stroke, I can just say that you know, in in our modern age, uh, a lot of the things the Bible has to say about women is very off-putting to women. All right, it's meant to be. Right, because the fact is, you know, when any person or group of people tries to elevate themselves out of a sense of self-worth and self-esteem and all of that, um, frankly, you need to be kicked in the face back into the mud pit. Okay. That, that, that uh, applies to everyone. You know, but it, it is something that you see um, the and, and this is really one of the traps, I think, of modernity in pushing this idea of self-worth and self-determination and all of this, is it, it makes it doubly hard to hear what the Bible is saying. You know, so we, we, just, we don't want to accept the truth. But Brown is saying here, look, you know, the Bible says if you, if you just... You know, Come to God, humble. You know, be like that Canaanitish woman. And when Jesus says, you know, you're, you know, you're not worthy of my, um, of my mercy. She doesn't, you know, walk away and say, "Well, how dare you say that?" <coughs> you know, I'm, a, I'm a proud, self-conscious. Feminist. You know, feminist, right? <laughs> exactly. She, she doesn't do that at all. She doesn't follow that line of thinking. Okay. It's it is it is a problem, and it's a problem. You know, it, it's this is a problem really, which is is grounded in the general casting off of religion in our age. It's just made. What is already a difficulty for for human beings, much more difficult because you've got the majority of people singing like a choir in your ear that you know you have value and dignity and blah 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 blah, and how horrible a thing it is that the Bible would say these kinds of things about people. Well, you know. I think God knows something about people because God created people. So eighth. The eighth point, H. 69H. Humility consists in waiting with patience and without wearying until the Lord is pleased to grant the light of his countenance to us. A humble person 
He says, doesn't run away because he doesn't get an answer at first. Humble people wait, you know, they'll wait to receive their alms. When I was a kid, I heard a lot of times, beggars can't be choosers. And that's kind of what Brown is saying here. You know, we're spiritual beggars. If we really understand our estate, we are not in a position to demand anything. We're begging. And he says, beg. Don't, you know, beggars, you, if you're a beggar, you have to be prepared to receive whatever God is willing to give you. We don't have a right to anything, naturally speaking. Any rights that you come by, you're going to come by by taking hold of that covenant with Christ. But those rights then are not rights that belong to you naturally. They're covenant rights. Naturally, you have a bunch of duties to do. But you, you really don't have any uh, expectation, any reasonable expectation of any kind of reward from doing what you are supposed to do because when you've done what you're supposed to do you're still an unprofitable servant as Jesus says alright, nine I nine I humility consists in welcoming heartily and cheerfully anything this really goes with the other point how small soever God is pleased to give without any grudging, no repining. Again, he brings up the prodigal and he also brings up that woman of Cana. She's, she's basically telling Jesus, look, I'd be satisfied with a crumb. So let me have a crumb. Okay, I understand you're not going to let me eat at your table, but let me have a crumb. She's she's begging. That's what beggars do, right? Beggars, you know, beggars may start out with trying to get you uh, to give them more, but you know, beggars generally, if they're rebuffed, they they uh, keep lowering their expectations and hopes, but they're still hoping to get something. You know, that's what he's saying. You should be like that when you're approaching God, right? It's it's um, it's the way you negotiate from the position of absolute weakness. All right, tenth or J. Humility consists in being very thankful for the very smallest mercies and humble even after the prayer is heard. So he says, for example, we look at uh, David's account in Psalm 34, verse 4. Uh, when his prayer is answered, he doesn't become more proud. He actually counts himself a poor man. Look at verse 6. And so there, there we see, uh, and, and gives the example of Ephraim again. But he says, you know, we, in these cases... Um, 
God gives you a, a little bit, tiny mercy. You should be thankful for every one, and, and it should make you not feel proud, but to confess your poverty even more. Yeah. Well, shouldn't you then, if you get a little bit, keep asking for more? Because that's what a true beggar does, right? Yeah. You give him a nickel, he's going to ask for sure. a dime next time. Sure. You keep you keep going. I mean, there's there is I mean there's a principle uh, that uh, among human beings, right? If you if you really want to get someone to do some big thing for you, start asking them to do small things. Because yeah, if people are willing to do small things, eventually they'll be willing to do bigger things. And that's kind of what you're doing with, with God here. You're exercising faith. But again, you know, you have to remember the position the position that Brown is telling you to take is not one of self confidence, but one of confidence in God as being merciful. Covenant confidence? There's a co- there's a covenant confidence that you have when you take hold of Christ, yeah. Because you know he He's actually merited. But you're not going to do that if you are holding on to the sense of self-worth and, and the sense that, you know, I've accomplished. Look at everything I've done. All right, 11. The 11th uh, thing. Okay. Humility consists in prizing above all God's mercy, pardon of sins, reconciliation, and acceptance. Remember the words of that poor, humble publican. He says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's not pleading something beyond that. And then the twelfth, the twelfth uh, thing in which humility consists, L, um, is exalting God's free grace and rich mercy for any favor received, no matter how small. That's that's all something that we should be prepared to do. All right, let's move on to the second thing to be studied in the manner of right prayer and why to seventy A and B. The second thing that he says, seeing it's God that we're to pray to, we should pray lifting up holy hands and. Um, the reason why you know, lifting up holy hands is, is significant in terms of uh, it does signify taking hold of the covenant. It also, you know, is there, this idea of lifting up hand, holy hands. When you raise your hands, you're showing you have nothing. Right? I have nothing to bring, and that's the idea here. So, the reason why is he says those who draw near to God should cleanse their hands and purify them their hearts. God does not hear uh, sinners, but if any man is a worshiper of him and does his will, he hears. So we want to be very careful in that regard. Alright, 271. Wherein then does this holiness consist? 
gives um, seven points wherein this holiness consists. First of all, he says, This holiness consists in bewaring of entertaining, harboring, and liking known sin. We're being resolved to hold it fast. And then he quotes here from uh, Ezekiel 14. Uh, beginning of verse 3. Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their heart, put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Should I be inquired of at all by them? Therefore speak unto them and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Every man of the house of Israel that setteth up his idols in his heart, and putteth the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and cometh to the prophet, I the Lord will answer him, that cometh according to the multitude of his idols. So, the idea, you know, that this first mark of holiness is that we eschew the idols of the heart, right? That we're not going to entertain, harbor, and, and hold on to, uh, you know, a desire for, for sin. Or the second thing in which holiness uh, consists is, he says, such as come to God by prayer should labor to have their hearts averse from sin and to endeavor to be delivered both from the filth and power of it. <coughs> and that this is exactly where, you know, what you, uh, what you see, what you hear, the company you keep, all of this is going to tend either to making you more averse to sin or to making you more familiar with sin. And so holiness is going to make demands on all of those things, what we see, what we hear, what we, the company we keep, and so on. Third, C. Holiness consists in uh, the apprehension of the holiness of the God with whom we have to do. So, part of holiness is actually... uh, apprehending that God himself is holy and that we have to do with him. When we pray, we're dealing with a holy God. The fourth are D. Uh, This holiness requires that we should be careful to observe whatever God has appointed for his worship and service in prayer. Otherwise, we're going to be profaning his name. So out of that, of course, uh, we can um, we can talk about the regular principle 
saying that holiness really demands this regulative principle uh, be kept personally. So when people people say, "Well, you know, is it?" Like I celebrate Christmas huh? in my house, but just not exactly. In or, or <laughs> you know, is it okay if I use musical instruments or, or sing hymns of human composition um, in the worship of God privately? And there are some people in the 19th century who kind of threw up their hands and said, "Well, you know, have at it. Uh, just don't let it come into the public worship of God." Spiritual they're, libertarians. They're really wrong about that. I mean, if you understand what Brown is saying, yeah. Right, fifth or E, uh, there should be a design to promote holiness by our prayers. Right, we shouldn't be praying to hold on to our lust. We should be praying for increase of holiness. Right, six or F. Uh, we have to, holiness demands we lay aside all inordinate passion and distemper. So we're lifting up holy hands without wrath, as Paul says to Timothy, uh, and without carnal fire, as Jesus says to his disciples in Luke 9. We need to be very, very careful that we're not approaching God, seeking uh, seeking um, satisfaction for our inordinate passions or distempers. And we have to lay them aside in prayer. And that that so again, if you if you consider what he's saying in order to pray aright, you have to endeavor after increase in holiness. You know, if you're if you're looking for you know fire to come down from heaven to destroy uh, people, or or you're looking for some appeasement of your wrath in, in all of that, uh, you need to be careful. And, you know, I, I say that personal revenge is different than praying against the enemies of God and his people. Right? So, Brown's not really getting into that point here. Don't I wouldn't understand him as getting into that point, but he's he's saying that you know this is about you, right? About whether or not um, whether or not you're seeking your own carnal desire, or you're putting that aside to pursue uh, holiness, right? And holiness is is about being set apart for God's use. So it's not inconsistent with praying against. You know, Antichrist and things like that. Okay, seventh, your G. Uh, this holiness requires we empty our heads of excessive carnal care. You know, what's going to happen? Um, 
when we pray, we need to be concerned about wandering thoughts. The wandering thoughts are usually the result of carnal care. We're worried about this. We're concerned about that. We're, we're not minding heavenly things. We're chasing after earthly things. And, and that shows up in this carnal care. Okay. 272 then, what's the third thing to be studying the manner of right prayer and why? <clears throat> Since we're praying to the true God, our prayers should be gone about with a suitable seriousness and earnestness. Uh, they shouldn't be trivial, trifling, shouldn't be in a superficial manner, um, as if it were indifferent whether or not God heard us. And this is actually something that I know um, years ago when I was in a Bible college uh, it was an Assemblies of God Bible College and there are a lot of reasons uh, theologically that this happens in, in this sort of situation and it's not this is not peculiar to Pentecostals only, um, but there were on numerous occasions uh, things that I would view as trivialing and trifling uh, praying, just not not a very serious sort of thing and um, it was a combination probably of, of you know bad theology and a lot of young people together and you know the, 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 the foolishness of youth and bad theology or bad combination um, but Brown is saying, you know, we need to be very careful about this. And, and the reason why, he says, um, is when we pray as though it's, you know, it's an indifferent thing, whether or not God would answer or, or we treat it in a trivial manner, it's really mocking God. It's really a mocking. So we should be very careful about that. We don't want to go around mocking God. So, you know, again, this has to do with your frame of mind and why uh, there should be a, a certain amount of preparation in, in praying. You should, uh, you should consider framing yourself to... Pray aright. And a uh, quick question: That would also be one of the objections with the frivolous lots, right? Dicing, all that kind of stuff. Where it's yeah, well, those are all taking God's name in vain. 
know, yeah. that's, that's why we put you know, church is always opposed card playing and dicing. And, but and it's that, that same sort of just very frivolous, it's a frivolous, it's appeal, a frivolous to God, approach. appeal to God. It's an appeal to God, right? Because, I mean, it, the casting of the lot is an appeal to God. Flipping coins and all of that. Whether people acknowledge it or not, you know, God determines the outcome of every event. And so, you know, yes, when you're asking God to decide whether or not I get to own, you know, in Monopoly, I get to own Boardwalk and Park Place um, so that I can charge the highest rents. That's, it's a frivolous, you know, it's a frivolous thing. Right? It's, mock, it's, it's mocking. People may not perceive it that way, but it's, it's mocking God. You know, they, they, the reason they don't perceive it that way is because they have, uh, they have low views of God, they have high views of themselves. It's a very problem that you know Brown began talking about at the beginning of his chapter. We we think uh, that you know our intention is enough to determine whether or not God should be offended. I didn't intend to offend God. It doesn't really matter if God says don't do this and you do this anyway. Uh, it's an offense, right? When you break God's law, it's an offense to His Majesty. He said, "Don't do this. Don't take my name in vain." And that's really what's going on here with the, the frivolousness that He's talking about. And that's why He says there's a mocking. Okay, so there's seven things then, two seventy-three, <coughs> that we should consider to understand this necessity um, that we. That we are careful about this, uh, the, the way we invocate God. The first, 273a, the first is um, God is serious in all his ways with and towards us. He doesn't trifle with us. What God does, he is, as it were, dead serious. You know, God says, do this, he's dead serious. Um, and, and you see that in the Bible. People are shocked sometimes, right? Think about the case of Uzzah. Uh, all he did was touch the ark of God and God struck him dead. All he was trying to do was steady the ark so it didn't fall in the mud. And God killed him for it. And you say, well, it just seems unreasonable. It seems... I, why would God do such a thing? Because God said, number one, uh, the priest should be carrying that ark. It should have been dragged behind a bunch of oxen. And number two, nobody but the priest should touch it. He didn't give an excuse except you know, or, or, or an exception, except if the ark is, is going to tumble. Right? Because, of course, the reason the ark is tumbling is because they had neglected the first part of that command, which is only the priest should be carrying it. Is it true that the priests weren't, the priests weren't even supposed to touch it when they were supposed to use the poles? They had to use poles. But there, were, there, there were times when they could come near to it and you know, somebody had to 
they, they, there were things that they they did around it. So, uh, but yeah, it was not it was not supposed to be something that people were supposed to be uh, grabbing hold of and and laying hands upon and all of that. So, God doesn't trifle uh, with us when He tells us. Uh, to do something, he means it. When he tells us not to, he means it. It's not, uh, you know, it's not sort of uh, God isn't isn't giving you uh, sort of a, a checklist of I wish you would do this or I wish you would do that. And it's a command. It's not trifling. All right. Second, B. Second thing necessary is he's serious in his calling. And commanding us to call on him. Right? He's not sitting off in the distance somewhere. Uh, again, trifling with us in this, you know, about this matter of prayer. When God says, "Call upon me," He means, "Call upon me." Okay, not, uh, not by halves. Not in a mocking or trifling manner. Third or C. Brown says, Do we ever find that such as have trifled with the Lord in their prayers have prospered in their way? And the answer is no. But those who've trifled in their, in their prayers have not prospered in their way. Because of this, we, we need to think about um, we need to think about prayer in all of its aspects. I, I would say this: you know, there, there are a lot of things that parents, when they do pray with their children, for example, that they do uh, that they should avoid doing. Um, you know. There are, you'll, you'll hear parents praying with their children and praying for, you know, uh, say something with respect to Santa Claus. Or, you know, that Santa Claus would come to the house, blah, 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 blah. Or th things like that. Uh, or, or, you know, other foolishness that enters in. You're teaching your children, whether you know it or not, you're teaching them to approach this as something frivolous and you wonder why later on uh, maybe they're not so inclined to pray there's a frivolousness in that and, and that needs to be avoided and he's saying you, you're not going to prosper if you're frivolous uh, really he says you're bringing on the wrath and displeasure of God alright fourth or D Um, he says, don't we, to the contrary, find that people who are serious in wrestling with God, they're the ones who actually obtain the blessings of the Bible. And I imagine here he would say, think Jacob, wrestling with the angel. Right? He's not doing it in a frivolous manner. He's 
saying, I'm not going to let go of you until you bless me. So that that sort of wrestling is not this sort of you owe me, but like back when, when he was talking about the humility, that sort of um, bearing with all those discouragements and challenges. Yeah. And just, I want more, I want that kind of turning into the covenant like we talked about the other day where you, you, you get a little and you want more and more and more. Yes. And he's, Jacob is, he, Jacob is, is not like, there's a sense he's, he's kind of like that woman of Canaan, right? The Canaan and woman, he's, He's not going to be content hearing no. And so and you see it with Abraham. You know, he doesn't stop at fifty. In fact, you know, if he had if he had only come down a few more, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah might have been spared. But he, I guess he thought that, that surely there must be ten. But Jacob doesn't stop at that point. All right, fifth, um, E. Uh, Brown points out the matters that we're to ask in prayer are great and necessary, uh, things which conduce to our eternal happiness. How in the world then, or why in the world would you? Um, approach it with this sense of indifference. You know, eh, answers it fine. If not, yeah. By the way, I, I would kind of, uh, well, I, I think more than kind of, when you pray and you don't get an immediate answer and you move on, it's kind of trivializing. I mean, if you've got a promise or, or a precept or some scriptural uh, pre- uh, you know, pretense for your praying in a, in a particular manner. You shouldn't just give up. Right? You shouldn't just stop. Uh, when you do that, I would say you are kind of trivializing. Right? You've, you're expressing a sort of indifference. You know, well, if you were indifferent about it, why were you praying about it in the first uh, in the first instance. All right, six. Um, he says, when, you know, when you're praying in that manner, when you're, you know, trivial or whatever, he says, instead of a blessing, you bring a curse on yourself. Because ultimately what you're doing is you're offering a corrupt thing to God. And that, that's just not going to go over. Then seventh G, um, he says when we, when we do this, when we, uh, when we lack this, this uh, suitable seriousness, he says we bring an evil frame upon our spirit, And from that, we tend to turn everything into a matter of indifference, make it superficial, and we become lukewarm in all of our approaches. 
So, 274, he says, if you want to know wherein the, the necessary seriousness consists, there are actually a number of points. The first, 274A, first, he says, is this. Um, if you were serious about it, you would press this work above all others. You would postpone other work for this, right? And I, I would say, you know, you could you could say this with regard uh, to every duty of, of true religion. Okay? And here it is. Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. If you put anything ahead of that, you're you're undervaluing. So, uh, in this case, we're talking about prayer. But you're undervaluing, and if you're undervaluing, that's not just a problem; it's a huge problem. All right, two seventy four B, the second point here. Says there's a frequency. If you're serious, there's going to be a frequency in the duty. The earnest soul renews its suits. You're gonna, you're gonna keep praying, keep knocking. Eventually, there'll be an answer. Third, C. He says there's a stretching out of the soul, uh, by which he means there's going to be a, an intense and fervent praying. So it's not just coming out of your lips, but it is something that is um, flowing out of a heart that is set in this direction. Fourth, he says if, if you're serious, then you're going to wrestle like they do in the Olympic Games. You're going to wrestle with your whole soul and heart. Fifth or E, he says, if you're serious, there's going to be continuance in it, a continuing instant in prayer, Romans 12, 12. Then you're going to continue. Now if we draw back. Uh, sixth or F. If you're serious, he says, your praying will be accompanied with a vehement desire after the good thing which is sought. And you're going to have, he says, a holy impatience of delay. Now, I know he said you're going to bear with these delays, but, you know, you're, again, when you're praying in this manner, uh, seriously, when you're saying how long, how long, 
you're presumed, in this case, uh, praying, you know, lawfully praying a right, praying seriously. Seventh, G. This is where there's a seriousness in prayer. Um, you're not going to be content with no's and delays. You're going to be like that widow uh, with the unjust judge. You're going to be importunate. You're going to be just keep knocking, keep knocking. And he talks about Jacob not letting the angel go. Moses wouldn't let God alone, and so on. And you're going to be persistent. Um, eighth, reach. As you're serious in prayer, you're, uh, the soul is not going to be put off with difficulties in the way and discouragements. These things are actually going to be uh, more reason for you to cry out and persevere. Ninth or I, you're serious. Is if you find your spirit growing flat, beginning to weary, you're going to shake off your drowsiness, your laziness, or whatever is holding you back. Tenth J. You're serious. You're going to avoid and guard against anything that might prove to be an impediment to your praying. Here he talks about, you know, wandering heart, uh, but he doesn't limit it to that. Anything that gets in the way, anything that is going to uh, sap your your uh, seriousness in prayer. Eleventh or K. You're serious. You're going to be earnest in the business of prayer. And you will take hold of every word which might encourage and give hope. Again, he says, look at the, uh, the Canaanitish woman. Um, Christ calls her a dog, and she takes hold of that. And says, okay, I'll argue from that point. And so he's saying, that's, you know, any, any encouragement, any hope, There, there's a sense in what in, in, I think here, what he's saying is um, when you're praying however things are going you want to look for whatever glimmer of, of um, encouragement or hope take hold of that and use that as your leverage as you continue to pray
Right? So there's a sense in which prayer is eternally optimistic and, and, and pushing back uh, the, the pessimism that is in the world. Twelfth or L. Seriousness in prayer. Uh, this is where there's there's this earnestness in prayer. There's going to be plying of all arguments to press on the desires and strengthen the expectation of an answer. And so. The saints of God very often, you know, will will go through a series of arguments. And you'll see this in the Psalms. And they'll move from point to point arguing with God in prayer. Right? They're arguing not again the only when they argue from themselves, they tend to argue, I'm worthless. But look, you you said right this. You promised that. Thirteenth Ram uh, seriousness in prayer lays hold on all the occasions and promising opportunities uh, wherein they may hope to come speedily. Right, so anything that is driving in the direction that you want to go um, is, is going to be taken, you're going to take hold of that and you're going to, you're going to um, try to make some sort of use of that. Fourteenth or N. He says, where there's this earnestness, seriousness, it's going to be the man's work. Right? And he points to Daniel setting his face to the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplication. It's, it's, if you're serious about it, it's going to be your work. And 15. Oh. This is sort of like one of the other ones, I think. He's just saying, you're going to lay hold on all the encouragements uh, to set set them on and hold them on. You're going to take, take hold of every possible encouragement. All right, 275, what's the fourth thing to be studied in the manner of prayer? He says, since we're we have to do with the true God in prayer. We need to be careful that we're not sinfully bold and importunate. Right? We need to be careful not to be too peremptory because God is an absolute and great sovereign. So we have to be patient and submissive to His holy will. Alright, 267 or excuse me, 276. What way should we exercise patience and submission in prayer? Um, 
gives us three ways to exercise patience and submission. First, he says is by leaving God latitude to give it, or what he thinks to be as good or better. So, you know, Paul Paul uh, says his grace is sufficient and he doesn't really uh, try to urge anything more, more particular. And this is a case something we have to consider. Sometimes when we're praying about something, um, we want to avoid being too particular. Okay. That's being patient and submissive. Now again, this uh, there, there are definitely promises and precepts, and they are more definite things. But when we don't have uh, those kinds of things, then you know, we sometimes need to be careful. Kind of like praying for a certain thing, but saying, "Oh, but could you do it this way and that way?" Like, yeah, do whatever he, way you want, as long as as long as I have you know the thing that I need. Right? Yeah, is that Paul, what you're talking about? Paul. Well, Paul, his his reference here is Second Corinthians twelve. I mean. Where Paul is praying that um, the thorn in the flesh is removed. But he says, your grace is sufficient, right? Thy grace is sufficient for me. Uh, he's prayed, but it hasn't been removed. And he's remaining submissive and patient without, you know, saying it has to be removed this way or that way. He's just praying. That it would be removed. All right. The second um, the second way in which we exercise patience and submission is as to the measure and quantity of the favor. And so he says, for example, the woman of Canaan was content with a crumb; the prodigal was content to be handled as a hired servant. And then third, as to the time and season of granting answers. He's going to do it in his time. And that should be sufficient for us. Alright, so there are two more questions that we're going to cover. Um, we get to about the middle of this chapter. So 277, how ought we carefully to exercise patience and submission in prayer? He gives us six uh, six things to observe. First, he says, consider this. This is why we need to be uh, patient and submissive in prayer. First of all, we don't know often, we don't know what spirit we're of. Right? We, we're approaching God, but we're not really um, maybe in the right frame. Second thing is, he, he says, consider this as well. We don't know what's best for us. And 
we're often ready to seek the very thing which, if it were granted, would prove to be very harmful. Third, he says, we can plead for nothing in the ground of justice because we deserve nothing but the curse of God. Fourth, he points out that very often we ask, but we ask amiss and for corrupt ends in order that we can uh, spend whatever on our own lust. Fifth, E. says, oftentimes we're selfish. We're minding our own particular and personal satisfaction than the public good or what concerns the glory of God. And sixth or F. Um, We have to remember God is a great and absolute God. He's not limited by his own creatures. Everything is at his disposal. So these are all given as reasons for being patient and submissive in prayer. Now, 278 then, some of the results of failure to exercise patience and submission. The first one he mentions, 278a, is this, that when we fail to exercise patience and submission, uh, we're often prompted to seek what is not suitable to our condition. And he points to the disciples uh, seeking to sit at Christ's right and left hand. Second result of the failure, 278b, is um, seeking before we're well advised what we're doing um, is is what the um, the people of Israel did in the wilderness when they failed to, to wait on God's counsel and instead fell lusting. Right? So, uh, if you don't exercise patience and submission, he's saying, you know, you're probably going to uh, fall into the trap of your own lust. Right? Third or C, 278C.
says, another result of the failure exercise patients is admission is that you're going to be urgent for a, a particular that um, that may end up being worse in the enjoying of it than the particular itself. And, and what he means is this, right? So the people in the wilderness are lusting after meat. And God gives them meat and it kills them. That, that's the kind of thing. Uh, they're lusting after a king and they end up uh, getting Saul who's going to take away their liberty and, and uh, all of that rather than waiting you know, for, for David. The fourth result of failure is when you're so bent You're so bent on the, this particular to think nothing of all they got besides. So, he says, for example, here, the people in the wilderness despised and they loathe the manna, which is angel's food. Um, they want flesh. Quotes Abraham saying, Lord, uh, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? He says, in this frame of mind, people are satisfied with nothing if they don't get the, the particular. Right? So if you don't get exactly what you want, if you don't get that flesh, well, so God's giving you manna. It's only angels' food, right? You can't see that because you want flesh. That's the idea. Right, fifth or E, fifth result of failure to exercise patience is it turns folks brutish and unreasonable. He says, what else you know, made Rachel uh, talk to Jacob in th this manner? Give me children or else I die. Since that, that's not even rational. Jacob isn't the one who can give her children. It's God. All right. The sixth result of failure to exercise, exercise patience is it, it tends to urge and drive to the use of unlawful means in order to gain the ends that they want. So what happens... You know, Rachel has a desire for children. She doesn't want to wait for God's time, so she gives her maid to her husband. And uh, really, she does the same thing Sarah did when she became impatient. How does she? How does she act irrationally, though? No, she's using an unlawful means here. She was acting irrationally when she said, "Give me children, or else I die," because it's not in Jacob's power to give children. 
G, the seventh point. Failure to exercise patience and submission uh, will often press men to desire things unseasonably. So not only unreasonably, but unseasonably. And just as the Israelites would have fit, would go to Canaan when the Lord had said the contrary, and they would fight against their enemies so they might take possession. But, you know, if you remember, uh, when they try to go unseasonably, that is before God's timing, it's a disaster. Right? They're, uh, they're put to flight, they're, it, it just, everything goes wrong. And that theme actually occurs in a number of places in the Bible when uh, people try to get ahead of God's time. You know, they, they're going to get the promised land, but they want to do it in their timing rather than God's timing. They're doing it unseasonably, and it is, uh, I think, in the Bible, uniformly disastrous. Right? Eighth or H, the result of failure. Uh, the failure to exercise patience and submission. It, it can make men so earnest they fall to quarreling boldly with God when they're not answered at the first. He says that's especially the case of their seeking is more than ordinary. And he, he says, he points out here in Isaiah 58, 3, uh, the language of, of uh, the people. Uh, Wherefore have we fasted and thou seest not? Wherefore have we afflicted our souls and thou takest their knowledge? <clears throat> you know, they're, they're quarreling with God because they're not patient and submissive. So they start quarreling. You know, have I obeyed God in vain. <clears throat> it's, it's a natural response, but it's a sinful response. 278 I, the ninth point, uh, failure to exercise patience and submission, uh, be submissive, uh, makes, makes people so importunate And if they're not answered, they lay aside the duty and cry out uh, with, with the king in 2 Kings 6.33. This evil is of the Lord. What should I wait for the Lord any longer? People tend to behave, he says, like atheists, practical atheists. Then the tenth point, or J, the tenth result of failing to exercise patience and submission. Uh, he says, when this humor prevails, it will make them fire hot for that particular, though it isn't necessary. And they become very cold and indifferent when it comes to seeking more necessary matters. That, in other words, what, what he's saying is this, and if you think about this, you, uh, 
you probably have done this very thing at some point or points in life where you become so hot for one thing you know, you're just on fire for one thing that the things which are actually more necessary just fall off of your radar right? you're not you're just not paying attention you're not you're, you you have no concern you're indifferent so he's saying that that's really the result of uh, failure to exercise patience and be submissive in the matter of prayer Okay, so we're going to stop there. There's a lot more to talk about in this chapter, but we'll continue with uh, the fifth instruction uh, next time. We'll go.